the impulse to go and not necessarily conquer, but even just to like explore truly unknown territory is incredibly strong. It's like some kind of base human desire in a world that is like completely mapped and completely known and where the processes for making things are totally known. You're not capitalizing on that really motivating drive to basically do something that's never been done before. I think that's when you look at projects like Los Alamos, NASA, and so on, the reason that they were able to be successful is because they were actually going after something unbelievable. You know, like they, they were like walking off into the, to the desert in a way. Few software projects today share either the contemporary relevance or fringe mystique of the Urbit operating and identity system. As a highly secure personal server, Urbit aims to deliver on many of the ideas pioneered by the cypherpunks, and after nearly 20 years in development, the platform has begun a phased launch. Urbit gives us persistent digital identity, a new benchmark for secure computing, and maybe even an open source response to modern social computing platforms like WeChat and Talk. In February of this year, Plon, the main company developing Urbit, invited me to their San Francisco office to interview the team for a podcast series. During the three weeks I was there, we recorded many hours of discussion. The resulting podcast series is a collage of excerpts from those discussions. The episodes aim to introduce the philosophy of Urbit, establish the problems it is designed to address, explain the way the platform works, and relate it to the world through the lens of Bitcoin, software as a service, and the growth model of Silicon Valley startups. We begin our journey with Urbit veteran Galen Wolf-Pauly, who introduces the project and its design principles, while reflecting on the collective Stockholm Syndrome we suffer in the grasp of existing computing models. What's your one-liner explanation of what Urbit is? One line? <laughs> I got like three, three lines, maybe. Um... Urbit is a peer-to-peer network and operating system built for the 21st century. Materially, it's two pieces of technology, Urbit ID, a decentralized identity and naming system, and Urbit OS, a new operating system that is an overlay OS on top of existing cloud services. Beautiful. That's succinct. (laughs) Okay. That's pretty succinct. To begin with, uh, yeah, could you please introduce yourself? your name, um, what you do, the organization you work for. I'm Galen wolf Polly. I'm the CEO of Tlon, and Tlon is the main company that develops Urbit, which is, in fact, of course, two pieces of technology and a community of people. There's even another company that works on Urbit, so, you know, the company Tlon is separate from the project Urbit, which is both a network and an operating system, and we'll get into that. How did you get involved with Urbit? When Tim May passed away... He he's so Tim May, early cypherpunk, probably one of the most important and most radical of the cypherpunks. He apparently spent almost all of his retirement in Corlitos, California, which is a tiny, super rural town uh, between Santa Cruz and Watsonville. Super small, but that's basically where I grew up and was was a kid. And I in in this weird rural place, there is equal parts crazy hippies who want no one, nothing to do with the government or anyone else and are effectively like homesteading out in the wilderness and people at the very far fringe of technology who are also, because you can commute from Corlitos-Watsonville area to Silicon Valley relatively easily. 
So I feel like the shortest answer I have to this is always that like I grew up around basically the very fringe of Silicon Valley, which was always super concerned with how do you use technology for to sort of increase people's level of freedom. And that was just like what I was around as a kid and what I grew up being interested in. And I think I was always obsessed with or excited by the flexibility and freedom that a computer could give you. It was not clear to me that I would build, actually build software or build tech, do anything related to technology. So I, in general, was interested in making things, sort of long story short, ended up going to architecture school, even though for the longest time I was working professionally as, a, as an engineer. And I did that because I think I was interested in making things in the broadest possible historical sense. So I wanted to understand how cities were built and the practice of building buildings, and I felt like architecture was the most sort of ancient um, practice of making things, which I still actually think is is true. And I felt like technology was, and and certainly like building software and all the the whole tool chain was incredibly immature. And I think I just wanted a different perspective on how things got made, and I definitely got that. The simple answer is actually that I found Urbit on Hacker News. It had been clear to me for a number of years, probably, that we needed a new operating system and that it really had to be thought through from first principles. So I was looking at basically anything that even closely resembled Urbit. I was ready to start on an ambitious project. That was probably in late 2013 and got involved shortly after working on it full time. And so why did you feel that we needed a new operating system? There's, there's maybe a more high-minded answer and a dumb answer. So the dumb answer is actually that <clears throat> I grew up proximal to the craziness of the early dot-com. And so I started programming really young. I managed to go to school for free. But the way that I paid for myself to live in New York and do a bunch of other things was basically just by building conventional software. I was always kind of a designer who also could write code. So that's a combination that can pay your rent. So just the dumb answer is that I had built so much software in the conventional fashion, I absolutely hated it. And the, and the sort of designer in me knew that this was not the right sort of stack that was going to serve humanity far into the future. And I was just sick of it. I was like, there's no way. This is not going to work. We got to replace this. This just is not what people need. Um, I think the slightly more high-minded answer is what I guess I was just saying in a way, which is that it felt to me like – Watching the rise of Facebook and the way that people were using the internet to sort of archive their lives and the whole history of society into this thing that I knew on technically was extremely fragile, <clears throat> I felt like this is historically very weird. We dig up tablets and we can translate them and read them and understand something about the ancient world. And it seemed to me that Facebook was never going to be that thing. Reddit was never going to be that thing. That there was a, we were putting a lot of data into things that were extremely fragile and didn't really suit the communities that were using them. So just to go back to something you mentioned earlier, who were the cypherpunks? Um, so the cypherpunks were a loosely connected group of people who I think of as mostly just being associated with the cypherpunk mailing list. I mean, the seeds of this whole crypto thing start on the cypherpunks list, right? Like the cypherpunks list is the, um, is the origin of basically people who are concerned with how do you use cryptography to ensure that people can sort of protect their digital independence, I guess. The insight of the cypherpunks is that basically cryptography gives you the means to guarantee 
individual freedom in a way that is basically kind of like undeniable. So my interest in so crypto or cryptography in general is sort of st- is is exactly that. It's like it's almost like a table stakes for how do you give people machines that they can actually control. They have to be protected in some way cryptographically, both in terms of the messages they send and receive, how someone owns the thing, and so on. I don't think of it it quite as in quite as aggressively activist of terms, but I appreciate these guys a lot. I think the work is super important. So how does Urbit take these principles and then productize them in a way that makes that, those, those freedoms and that control you know, broadly distributed? Urbit takes the sort of cypherpunk values and makes them almost completely invisible to the user. And I think that's, that's like the, the most, uh, that's the right way to do it. I don't think that there's going to be some kind of like mass you know, mass Facebook protests or something like that. Like people actually don't care about these things and that's completely fine. But it's, you know, protecting privacy in the digital world. Like the privacy that we enjoy in the physical world is great and we're adapted to understand it. And it should be completely natural to have those, that same privacy in the digital world. And, and that's sort of Urbit's attitude towards general sort of cryptographic ownership and encryption is that it's just, it should just exist and be completely unnoticeable to the user. So that's like invisible technology. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my problems with existing technology are mostly that they're way too visible and that they sh- and technology should be almost completely invisible to us. It should it should ser- if if your technology serves you completely, then you don't notice it. It sort of does exactly what you want. You know, you don't notice your the streets, the phone lines, the uh, the the you know the houses and buildings that you live in. That's what's incredible about them. They're like so well developed that they've disappeared into the background. And technology is like loud and noisy and obsessive and in your face. And that's not uh, that's not actually not desirable. I think we most people don't want that. Um, but people do want the affordances that connected technology give you. And so those should be easy to get without being distracted, annoyed, surveilled, and so on. I give this intro to every all-hands meeting, which is basically like, we're here to build a peer-to-peer network and operating system. That's like the materials problem we have to solve. It's like how to deliver this new technology to the world in a way that is understandable. Like new technology on its own does not get adopted. New user experiences, new ways of using technology drive the adoption of new, you know, engineering solutions. So we have engineering solutions. That's great. We're here as not, to not only make those work well, but to, like, make them useful to people. What is it that sort of constrains the way that we do that work? We intend to make, those, make things that are simple, both to understand to an ordinary user and for a developer to work on or for someone technical to, to understand and get involved with things that are durable, that should last an incredibly long time, like such a long time that you never worry about them disappearing, and things that are yours, meaning that you are not dependent on any third party or you can walk off into the wilderness with your Urbit in, uh, on a USB stick. Like, and there's no, yeah, you're not beholden to someone else to provide the thing to you. But those are like design principles. Those are like the kind of fundamental design principles of what we do, but they're not a product on their own. That's just kind of like the governing thinking around how we build the the thing itself. So, I mean, that that actually um, prefigures my next question, and that's what why does Urbit need to exist? There are probably two primary reasons that Urbit needs to exist. I think the most important one is really that what we do from day to day, uh, our communications with other people. 
you know, the history of our lives is really worth keeping and worth being able to reflect on far into the future, both, you know, what happens to us individually and then what happens to sort of the communities that we participate in locally and at a larger scale. In order to do that well, we need a, a much more solid sort of technical foundation, something we can put our digital lives into that, in fact, will last for a long time. A simple, you know, straightforward reason that Urbit needs to exist is that I, my sort of lived experience of using the technology that I use day to day is truly terrible, I think. And I, I think we've just been, it's like a Stockholm syndrome effect that we think that it's good. So using a bunch of different messaging apps, using a bunch of different applications to take notes or store documents, your files are all over the place. Switching between individual apps that I can't customize, I can't do anything with, is just actually a terrible user experience. If you were going to design that from scratch, you would never design something like this. It is not nice to use, um, and it can be much, much nicer, and cater more to sort of people's everyday creativity, which is what the computer is for. Why is this happening now, and what are the tools, technologies, and mechanisms that are contemporaneous to the creation of Urbit that enable it to happen now? And how are they being all brought together? Without the existence of secure blockchain, you probably couldn't pull off Urbit ID right away. Technically, Urbit has always been, there's nothing preventing the OS really from, from existing. The question is more like, why is it that you can do this now, almost technically? There are two separate reasons that are primarily technical separately for Urban ID and, and Urban OS. So let's start with the OS. Urban OS is, an, is what we call an overlay OS. It runs on top of any Unix machine with an internet connection. We take for granted that there are Unix machines with internet connections basically everywhere. And that, as a pure technical fact, is, uh, was not true 10 years ago was starting to be true, but wasn't quite there yet. Urbit really treats the fact of AWS, GCP, basically globally deployed cloud services, we effectively treat that like the internet treated the phone line. We're just like, this is infrastructure that's not going away, and we're going to build a new layer on top of that. Unix with the internet, you know, Unix plus TCP IP has been around for a really long time, but it hasn't been as globally deployed as it became basically after Web 2.0 you know, really kind of took over the world. And you had these infrastructure providers build data centers everywhere. So our approach, our technical approach, is much more viable in a world where you can provision a Unix instance programmatically in minutes. And, I mean, the, the fundamental sort of value proposition basically is like, you, listener, you, Arthur, me, like anyone can go provision one of these things and they're totally useless to you because they're incredibly complicated to use. Even to me, someone who's comfortable in the command line, I've done plenty of sysadmin work, I don't want to run a Unix machine. So Urbit effectively makes those things useful, and the fact that they're ubiquitous means that they should be made useful in some way. Then in the case of Urbit ID, you know, there's always been this problem since the beginning of the internet, really, that your username and your network address are, for the most part, provisioned by some third party. They're provisioned by someone else. This doesn't really matter materially in most cases, um, except when, for some reason, that thing goes away or the service that issued it to you disappears or in the case of, I mean, network addressing is a whole, has a whole thicket of problems. But basically, no one has ever, in a network world, come up with an identity and naming system where 
the owner of that identity and a network address actually owns the address itself. That's just literally never actually been done. It was not prefigured by anyone who worked on the stack um, in the early days of the internet. In order to do that, you need a viable way to let someone, you know, cryptographically or in some fashion own this asset, you know, where it's reasonable to expect that they do, that, you know, through owning the keys, they do in fact own the thing. So we've bootstrapped Urbit ID on Ethereum. It could be bootstrapped on any globally deployed blockchain, but the existence of globally deployed, reasonably secure blockchains is definitely super important to our ability to deploy a, a, a naming system and identity system. So yeah, the combination of widely deployed cloud services and global blockchains is a total necessity, like that's absolutely necessary for, for Urbit to work in its current fashion. Who uses Urbit? Um, today, Urbit is used by the people who develop Urbit. So the core developers of Urbit kind of hang out on Urbit from day to day. And then there's a sort of amorphous group of weirdos who think that this thing is cool and also hang out on the network day to day. Uh, not that unlike any early social network or really kind of like the early internet. I don't have a good and simple way of defining those people because we generally actually don't really tell people to use Urbit, but we leave the door open. And we've done that actually kind of for years. Everybody is perfectly happy to have people experimenting with Urbit and playing with it, uh, but it's not ready for serious use. So that, that in a way, that defines the people who use Urbit today. It's like if you're interested in this kind of stuff, it's exciting to you and you want to experiment with it, that's the, that's the character of the people on the network today. It's a small community, but it's pretty active. And, you know, Urbit is mainly right now for like chatting, writing, sharing links, you know, very, very simplistic social networking tools. And pe- that community has kind of figured out how to form sort of small subgroups and subcommunities that exist out on the network that we don't even really know about, but I'm aware that they kind of exist. Th- that community of people is unlike, I think, what we hope Urbit will grow into or the, or the profile of, of like who should be using Urbit eventually. I think it goes through a few different phases. So I think that Urbit is interesting to and is hopefully used by anyone who would use sort of like Signal or WhatsApp for privacy reasons or even someone, probably early users of sort of Slack, some of the Basecamp products and so on for really for like building small communities. Where, but I think that Urbit is very targeted at people who are excited about the technology itself. There's a community of people who would like to own and control their own tools, who are comfortable using new technology. So in the near to medium term, that community should grow a lot as Urbit gets more usable. Over the long term, of course, the idea is, you know, replace your OS, basically. I mean, we want this to be a completely conventional consumer product. Realistically, the way that you get there is by engaging this sort of small community of people who care about using calm, self-sovereign software, uh, which is a little bit on the fringe, but is a good community of early adopters. So what do you mean by strong and self-sovereign and calm, did you say? Yeah. So Urbit will never show you ads, uh, does not have any real incentive to keep you addicted to it, and is under your control in every way. And we try to sort of telegraph that to you, even as a naive user. Most of the tools, like cloud-based tools that we use to communicate and collaborate, because of the way that they are funded, have a strong incentive to 
either mine your data or keep you on the platform as much as possible. And whereas like your operating system that runs on your computer or even on your phone does not have that incentive. They're much more purpose-built. And so I think Urbit occupies this interesting space of feeling in a way like a cloud service, but being totally purpose-built and under your control, which in my eyes like is fantastic. Like that's, that's the kind of user experience you want to have with something that is you know, universally available on the network. The following comes from a subsequent conversation where Galen introduced several observations about software as a service, which other teammates echoed from different perspectives. One of the weirdest things about software as a service in general, like consumer software as a service, is that the interface, all the rules about how you use the service are entirely decided on by someone else. So it just gets delivered to you. I think we are always constantly in the process of customizing our environments. It's just how the physical world exists. Like you are born into it. It was, it was already done for thousands of years of work. <laughs> we're done, right, uh, to, to make that the case. So by contrast, it's just really weird that when you go into the digital world, it's like you're just in a resort and you can't move the furniture. You know, you're not allowed to change anything. You can't modify things to suit your needs really at all. They're just the feed, <laughs> you know, there's like the, <laughs> the feed is law. Uh, so I do think like when you imagine, like just imagine you grew up in a hotel room and then you moved into a different hotel room, <laughs> you know, like you never left like a completely controlled environment. It would be very strange. It's normal to us to customize our environments. So when I think about, well, what's one of the best things about a cloud computer that you own and can control? Well, it should be one that you can really custom, that you can practically customize, that someone with no technical understanding can customize. So software as a service just delivers us an experience. And, you know, the counter argument to Urbit often is like, well, like, I can run my own Unix server. And it's like, well, yeah, but no one can do that. That's the problem. The problem is most people can't do that. So you have this completely unfair distinction, which is like, well, if you're a system administrator, you get digital freedom. And if you're not, you are fucked. It's like either you run everything yourself and it's a job or you live in jail. And you get to pick which jail, but that's it. So the Urbit approach or the way I think about it just purely from a design standpoint is that, look, like... An ordinary person can figure out which furniture they like, can go to Ikea, can arrange a room, can figure out what to put on the wall. And you want to have the same experience with your digital life. Like you want to be able to evolve your space with you. And that doing that creates a sense of ownership and trust that we have in the physical world. All of everybody has this. And I think the places that feel the most familiar and alive and the places you want to be in are places that have evolved over a long time that like bear evidence that people are participating and making them and making them sort of feel specific. That doesn't, there's nothing digital like that. And sort of like, yeah, you'd want Urbit to, to have that quality. Think of it in three, I think of it in sort of like three tiers. So anybody can organize the furniture in a room. Some people maybe want to learn how to build furniture and then a, and some people want to actually like build their own houses. And you want that gradient of, of like expertise to be really smooth, right? Like you want it to be easy to say, I'm just going to choose which apps to run or which modules to put together. I want to choose which, what things this community is going to do together. You want to be able to change that really easily. For someone with no technical knowledge, this is the IKEA level of participation. 
you're like, you know what? There's something I want to do I don't know how to do or like that doesn't exist. I need to create it. Okay, well, you're going to have to learn to program. Like you're going to have to learn to pound some nails. You go to Home Depot. It's like I feel like there's like an equivalency there. But going to Home Depot and doing simple you know, work on your house is not hard. Urban has to have like a smooth gradient, like Ikea, Home Depot. Yeah, you're building from scratch or something like that, like doing kernel development. I think that might be like, it's funny. I think of like, you're like, what's the advantage of Urban? It's like you do everything in one place. You have a unified environment. Great. But another part of that is that you have a unified environment that a non-tactical person can control such that it can feel like it evolves with them. Like you feel ownership over it in a way that you do it about your own home or your room or something along those lines. I don't think anything in the digital world feels like that. Like, nothing feels like that. You can arrange the apps on your home screen. It's just so fucking boring and weird. I don't know. Yeah, and I think of things that change their interfaces. Yeah. I'm like an old man when it comes to, like, interface change. Yeah, it sucks. Facebook has been a nightmare over the years, always changing its interface. Uh, Twitter... I was using Twitter, and they changed the interface, and I just couldn't figure out how to search. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds really moronic, but it was... No, I think it's totally... There's, I mean, there's a story of someone internally who, whose daughter, like, I think, you know, seven-year-old daughter came to him in tears because her Kindle interface had updated, and she was confused, you know? <laughs> and I thought that was like, <laughs> you're like, oh, but this is the new interface. I'm supposed to be into it. But it's like, look, if it makes a child a child cry, like it's like there's something deeply fucked about that. I mean, it's not that new interfaces even aren't better. It's like you do. You would just be nice if you had a choice, you know. Or you, yeah, I don't know. The, it's just too coarse. Okay, there's no. To me, it's like I, I don't need Twitter to have an interface. Twitter does not need to decide the interface for short messages. It doesn't make sense. And two different users could just decide to use different interfaces for Twitter, and they should still be able to communicate. Like just the if you think of the the sort of vertical integration of these things is so extreme. It's just completely insane. It doesn't make any sense. When I talk to a lot of people about Urbit, yeah, people often conflate it with a customizable interface for anything, but yeah. really. What it is is interfaces are one of the greatest pain points. So I feel like that is where people recognize value. But really, it's the uh, de-verticalization of these services. Yeah, Removing- yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So one of it's like think of decouple interface and data, or interface and like protocol. Urban as an OS is just a meta protocol. You can store a bunch of different types of data, really any type of data in it, and define the logic about how that data moves around in this network of nodes. That is completely separate from the client that you use to interact with it. You can build an e-ink screen, Wi-Fi only device that uses Urbit as a chat protocol, or you can use our fully featured multimodal way of interacting with Urbit. It doesn't matter. Uh, And those things should, in my opinion, be completely separate. This reminds me of the secure Scuttlebutt community where you have the secure Scuttlebutt protocol and then a ton of different clients. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Yeah, I wish I was more familiar with SSB, but yeah, from what I understand, I think it's super similar. Um, The difference is just that SSB is one protocol. There's clients that interact with Urbit. On Urbit, there are individual protocols which are short, relatively easy to understand, still written in Hoon. Uh, that expose some HTTP API. And then there's, of course, like the Urbit OS or Arvo kernel, which is like defines the set of services in the system. And as you kind of go down those steps, you're getting like into more and more sort of really just like carefully considered code, which means it's obviously like 
we take it more seriously when we update it. So what do you mean? Can we, uh, so uh, what's Hoon? So Hoon is the language that compiles to Knock, which is the Urbit OS virtual machine. It's basically just Hoon is the native language of, of Urbit, of the Urbit operating system. JavaScript for Urbit. Yeah. Well, it's just that we have our own language because we have a very specific definition of computing. While you can think about compiling, I think it would be extremely difficult to compile JavaScript to Knock, you, like you could think of compiling another language to Knock. Hoon is like a thin wrapper over Knock. It's actually super simple. It compiles itself. It's self-hosting. So you can sort of inspect exactly how the language turns itself into this simple bytecode that we use as a computing function. A challenge that I've had yeah. throughout these interviews yeah. is crystallizing Urbit into a consumer product, right? Yeah. It's there's so much possibility that it dissolves into ambiguity. It's it's almost like there's so much there's so many things it can yeah. do. There's no yeah. overriding story or unifying, yeah. you know, purpose for Urbit that yeah. I can hold in my hand and say, wow, look at that, you know? Mm-hmm. Because this yeah. it hasn't found itself into the wild, right? Like yeah, yeah. no one knew what Ethereum was until yeah. they had the explanatory medium of tokens and DeFi and stuff to realize that, oh, you've got yeah, yeah, something yeah. that is financial-grade software, right? Yeah. Well, we've talked about, I mean, my like default answer here is basically like, if you look at the way that people communicate, and I'm saying you look at, you know, kind of like you stand behind someone all day and watch the way that they use their phone or something like that. So look at it from the standpoint of the user. Everybody has a set of communities that they interact with uh, and a set of things that they're trying to do that requires them to f- constantly flip between a bunch of services. And so from the user's perspective, they don't care specifically about any individual app or service that much. Occasionally, an app or service will show us some new way of communicating. But what I think people want is to be able to build communities, to connect directly with people, and have yeah, like have an archival history of what they've done that's private to them and easy to manage. But, they, you know, you want to be able to look back at things that you've done, have a really solid record. You want to be able to talk to people, interact with people in a bunch of different ways, whether it's synchronous chat, writing, sharing files, and so on. Trading. Trading, yes, like sending, like exchange of value, interacting with businesses. If you look at the rise of Slack, Asana, Dropbox, basically productivity software writ large. The worst thing about this environment of productivity software is that none of it communicates with one another. They don't interoperate like at all. So if you think of Urbit just from the standpoint of it's just a place that you can get a bunch of different types of things to interoperate. You have like one place, you bring people together, you talk, you do task management, you trade, you, you know, whatever that set of things is. But it's like a multimodal system for communities to work together or people to stay in touch. That's like how I would hope that people think about Urbit. I think that on its own, whether it's decentralized, whether it's deterministic, whether it's none of that shit actually matters. It's like you're providing just a better, like a, a unilaterally better user experience than I switch between a bunch of different apps. On every app, I have five communities. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out which one I'm trying to interact with. And then I have to switch between, you know, writing and task management and money or whatever and so on and so forth. Uh, that experience sucks. And you're never going to get a better user experience out of the existing paradigm. So 
there's a rationale for all the technology we built. It's just like, no, we want people to have a really great user experience tightly integrated between cloud service-like things. Um, and to provide that user experience, you need a new operating system. So can people keep their Facebook account and interact with that through a API that connects it to Urban? So theoretically, yeah. I am of the mind that people don't actually care that much about their legacy accounts. Think of Urbit as the place for high trust communities to like sort of take life or begin to exist. Because I don't think of Facebook or any of the communities that I ever existed in on Facebook as particularly high trust. Social media in general, I think, is not super high trust. So that's why I tend to be more interested in sort of productivity tooling, tooling around work and so on, because it it's aimed at groups of people who are really, you know, that are like working together, that are depending on each other in a different way. Interestingly, from a social standpoint, those things don't exist, right? High trust social networks don't really exist. Like they kind of exist in group chat. Like that's the best exist, like like evidence of it. Or you see that happen to some degree on like Slack, Telegram, or uh, Signal, Telegram, WhatsApp. So that maybe is the um, the like vertical or something that I'm like more interested in. Bring people together where they feel tightly connected, where they feel safe, like where you kind of like. There's a different type of digital space, basically, that doesn't exist already um, that I think is desirable in a way that Facebook is not desirable. I guess to put it another way, I don't think people care that much about their old accounts because they were basically just about showing off to their friends, and it's not that important. <laughs> and so what you really want is a, a place where you're going to connect with people in a, way, in a completely different way, in a more earnest and more genuine way. That doesn't really exist. And I think, yeah, Urban is poised to capture that. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, the reason I bring that up is that, you know, when I think about Facebook, I have Facebook and I actually use Facebook Messenger as my yeah. primary means of communication yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because there is more people on that than anything else. Yeah, yeah. So the Rolodex is really imp- – is like tra- sort of tragically important and is trapped by is, – as, as far as I can tell, is like the main thing that supports Facebook's stock price. Like just the fact that the network effect is so incredibly strong. It's tough to break, but, you know, AOL was a big company like <laughs> – <laughs> I mean, I just like, I think you just have to assume that that is possible to change because people want to use a different kind of product, basically. Does that make sense to you? Like this idea of like, I think that WeChat example, people have to know what WeChat or Line or Kakao Talk is. But like, if you look at those things, they are so far ahead of like the user experience of everyday sort of like Western communications and collaboration software. And it's completely obvious to me that that's desirable, right? I want to go into one interface where I have all the things that I'm trying to do, and they're integrated with one another, they share data, uh, the interface is consistent, like that is vastly better. Before you use the term Stockholm Syndrome to describe our relationship with our applications. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you want me to use it again? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I do think there's definitely a, a, some degree of Stockholm Syndrome around our attachment to this existing, the existing services that we use and the way that we use them. And so if you kind of take a step back, you know, you like just you are free to leave the hostage situation like, and look at, yeah, you look at WeChat line, Kakao Talk. It, they're better. They're 100% better. Just assume all your data is moved into this model. It's better. Are there big problems with it? Yeah, they're 
are there there you can even do better than that, I think. So just kind of like I'm looking at it from yeah, from that kind of dispassionate standpoint of like, let's forget the network effects problem. Can you build a better user experience? In fact, can you better build a better user experience is so much better that people would switch. And yeah, definitely. And then the long term game is just maintaining that better user experience while you build the Rolodex that makes Facebook so valuable. Yeah. So you have to start like the brilliant thing about Facebook strategy is the Ivy Leagues, right? So you start with really high quality, really engaged communities. So a big, our biggest challenge is like, how do you go seed those early communities that are super high trust, that are super engaged? And I think if you look at the kinds of people, if you look at what's happened in group chat on encrypted messengers over the last two, three years or so, like you already see that, right? You may have some friends who remain on Facebook, or Facebook may be an important Rolodex for you. But I think for a lot of people, they've very willfully moved away from that platform and like found that you know encrypted group chat is a whole other medium for them to engage with people. It's not competitive. It's not the same size as Facebook, but it's like you see the seeds of, okay, this could be broken. This could go away. The thing that's important to understand about the kind of WeChat analogy is that when I look at WeChat, I think, oh, but... What if all of the modules in here were things that individual developers could contribute or could basically distribute as apps? So the, like WeChat is tightly controlled, is centrally controlled. But it strikes me that the sort of Western answer to WeChat is one where you have the ability of, of third-party developers to like ship to the platform. It's like take that model but build it as a platform that has a full-blown you know, Cocoa-level UI framework and, and where individuals run their own nodes, and then you, but you can still let developers actually ship to that. That's where it becomes also more exciting, right? Imagine that when you want to build Instagram, you don't have to build your own network, right? It's just, oh, I'm just going to share photos, and I ship it to Facebook as a platform kind of thing, if that, if that makes sense. We were talking before, you made a comment before that I've been like slathering all around the town telling everyone I've got this really great quotable quote that um <laughs> reputation is increasing <laughs> don't worry I've been taking credit for it oh damn <laughs> <laughs> well you can it's fine you can have it um, that uh that technologies are adopted due to either enterprise use or fashion yeah this made me think of the cypherpunk world and bitcoin basically and how we have today in the blockchain space two different communities, the Bitcoin diehards, and you have the, say, for example, say the Ethereum community that's really focused on this cypherpunk future where, where you have digital self-sovereignty. And the problem is that those guys are really languishing under a failure to find product market fit, yeah. whereas Bitcoin, on the other hand, feels much more solid in yeah. what it's doing. Well, there are a few things we can dive into here. I mean... The framing to put this in is this idea that basically like new technology has either existed because it is cool or because it uh, finds an enterprise use case or which is another way of saying really like there's a, you know, sort of like a market inefficiency that is solved just through the sheer existence of a particular technology. On the cool side, (laughs) like you actually almost could, there's parts of personal computing, which ultimately come down to it being cool and fun, right? Even like in the early PC era, whereas say cloud computing solves a real enterprise problem in that like co-location, self-hosting is expensive and hard. Bitcoin just is simple enough to exist as a new asset class. And so it can attract sufficient interest from the trading and financial services community to support its um, you know, sort of continued existence just through the sheer act of trading. 
certainly like it would be nice if you know Bitcoin as medium of exchange is super interesting and something that's certainly exciting to me, but it's hard to understand exactly how that materializes given the multitude of problems that stand in front of it in terms of basically just like user experience and kind of like integration into our digital lives in some way. And so my take on, I mean, so the, so the cypherpunks, this, you know, early collective of people around cypherpunks mailing list in the, well, like screw the time, I mean, you know, like early to mid nineties were, you know, super interested in basically like the potential of cryptography and related cryptographic protocols, processes, and so on. And uh, they, they were fascinated with, you know, how could this basically like both change our lives, change the world at large, and so on. Obviously, huge impact on the blockchain world that we're in, whether we like it or not. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and uh, I've always, I've definitely had a been of the opinion for a while, like when you look at some of the stuff that came out of that group of people, um, some of it you know, there was tons of speculation around how could you build digital cash. Like the relationship between the cypherpunks and Bitcoin is obvious. But there are lots of other innovations that were speculated on that, you know, for example, web of trust, digital identity stuff we care a lot about that never materialized in terms of like it's not in widespread use. Not really. Those are things that, yeah, I tend to think of as basically like they're extremely promising, but they basically are technical innovations for like a world that doesn't really exist yet. And the only way that world is going to come into existence is because people want to live there. And I definitely think of like urban is, is this vast expanse, like is a world that could become inhabited that implements a bunch of these primitives because we think they are simply useful to a digital world where people act as independent actors. But yeah, there's this, it's just like real imbalance, definitely. And it's really extreme in the crypto and sort of blockchain space in terms of like, you have technical innovations that are vastly before their time, basically, and they don't yet have like a place that they are useful. And it certainly concerns me a lot more to effectively like figure out where that place is like and put them to use. <laughs> Although I think the technology is really interesting. That's the first question I ask about anything like that is basically like, okay, well, how does this become useful? Like, how does this get used in a unremarkable way? Like, how does it become, get integrated into something that people don't think about? Um, in the same way that like when people log into Facebook or, log, or like make a Google search, they don't think about TCP IP. We should hope that like, you know, the suite of things that the cypherpunks cared about are at that level of remarkability. Like they're just completely invisible to us. They're all just used and in the background. This brings my mind to uh, the Urban ID PKI. This is a fundamental thing because we don't have a way of representing, representing ourselves digitally or managing our, our identities digitally. So before I said that I use Facebook as my primary means of communication, yeah. my secondary means is email. And I tell just about everyone send me an email, especially if it's work-related, because I'm always at the same email. Whereas if I yeah. go, you know, and so I feel like... I do uh, the same thing, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I feel like Urbit is essentially is offering, offering something that has similar, char similar robustness characteristics. Yeah, absolutely. I, but this is the funny thing about digital identity, which is that digital identity, like, like self-sovereign or, or like self-owned digital identity is obvious in a way, right? Like it makes complete sense. Like we interact in the digital world all the time, use a bunch of different services to do so. Do you want to 
effectively hold your keys. I think it's relatively easy to you know, pitch that, even to almost like ordinary people. The fact that you can port your phone number, it's like people are like, oh yeah, of course, that makes sense. Like my phone number is this natural thing that I want people to be able to reach me at. Of course, you don't get to keep your email address and you don't get to keep your Facebook ID. You know, you don't get to keep anything. So people don't experience that pain. And so I don't think it's palpable to people. They're like, oh, digital identity, sure. But are they going to adopt some digital identity? Is there going to be a mass? Are there going to be protests until we get digital identity? You know, demand Urban ID now. So yeah, I think my sentiment is the same about this, which is that, you know, Urban ID is built for a world where people want to, you know, communicate directly, transact directly. Um, it's built basically for a digital world that has to be ex- come into existence from out of sort of like sheer communal social desire. It has to be cool to be there. It has to be interesting to be there. People have to want to be there on their own. And if that's true, then they'll realize the benefits of clear thinking about, you know, how should we do digital identity, basically, like how should a, how should a PKI exist? Can you describe the user onboarding flow that you anticipate Urbit having with its upcoming release OS1? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So today, if you want to run Urbit, you install, it's actually pretty simple for open source software. You install one thing on top of a VPS on your Mac uh, or inside of a container in Windows, clone the thing or install it, run it, and that's it. For most people, this is completely, unbelievably difficult, impossible, never going to happen, (laughs) Uh, even though I think we do pretty well as like open source software that still requires you to use the command line. So the onboarding experience we're looking for is really on par with any software as a service. So someone invites you via email. You click a link, you drive a password, and you log in. It all happens in a web browser. There are some clues that this is an unusual thing that you're using in that, you know, of course, we can't recover your password for you. It's actually a private key. And what we do is we actually are spinning up an instance of this thing that's independent that you can even download and, and take with you later if you don't want us to host you. But the goal is really to make it as simple as I signed up for Facebook or I signed up for Instagram or whatever. As far as I'm concerned, there's no way, like it's, uh, this is absolutely necessary for people to be able to use the thing and in the way that we would like them to use it. And that's just entirely to do with the nature of self-owned private keys. It's, well, it's two things. Key management is ugly in general. So obviously the way that we've gotten around that you know, on the current internet, it's like someone else manages your keys for you. And there is no key, really. I mean, you know, Facebook has keys that matter, like the keys to their... Kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> or like their own SSL keys or whatever, right? But beyond that, they're none of those... Your login is not a key. It's a, just a password. It's just a line in a database. In our case, yeah, you're, you have a secret. We will never know that secret. You, you hand us kind of a lower value secret so we can run a node for you. The hard thing is not the key, though. The hard thing is running the node. That's the thing that most people don't want to do. So that's what we'll do for you is like we'll, we'll run the node for you. So unlike, you know, blockchain-based systems and whatever hand-wavy sense that are claimed to be permanently available, always online through some quote-unquote incentive <laughs> set of incentives or whatever, which in some cases works, in some cases doesn't work. We're not claiming that this is just like a permanent computer that's ubiquitous because magic or because blockchain or whatever. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's actually a computer somewhere. Someone's got to run it. We'll run it for you. Soon Urbit.law will run it for you. Think of it like WordPress.com or whatever. It's just some service provider that's hosting a thing. 
the important thing is that service provider has to you know provide a really good user experience to be super simple to set up on par with yeah like setting up hosting for urbit should be like signing up for instagram it's the same thing so begins our urbit journey to test this onboarding flow visit urbit.org forward slash install you can find a discord channel there too urbit.live maintains a telegram channel as well next up engineer ted blackman introduces the technical side of the urbit os 